So they were staying with me, and then they brought me along to the convention and to the party afterwards, and brought me to the party. And these are old friends of theirs saying, well, who is this? Who is this? And again, they played the kind of joke routine. Oh, he's a, he's a relative. Doesn't he look like us? Don't you think he looks like us? And, and then there was a lot of laughter, and that crossed the line. That was one of the lower points of this whole thing for me. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show, you're going to meet Tim, who called me from Brooklyn, New York. I asked him if he was a native New Yorker, and he said, no, I've only been here 50 years. He was born and raised in Minnesota. You'll hear him describe a life where he was allowed to bond with his birth mother early, which he feels made a huge difference in his adoption. Later, his faith, which he followed a long way, turned out to be quite different from his heritage. Tim shares how his birth mother first didn't want to meet, but was convinced to do so by Tim's father, or so he thought. Many decades later, Tim searches over as he's found the missing pieces in his 70s. This is Tim's journey. Tim was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1944 at Booth Memorial Hospital, run by the Salvation Army in connection with a home for unwed mothers. I like to say I think it was significant that my birth mother kept me for a little over a month. I don't know if that was a policy back then, but... uh... I look back and think, huh, I'm not a bitter person, I don't think. And I think the fact that she she actually nursed me and she kept me for a little over a month, I think that that helped in this whole adoption process. What did you mean by that? I feel, you know, I've read a couple books, Primal Wound being a, being a pretty significant book. And uh, it just feels to me... Like I, I had that connection. I had that bonding with uh, with my mother, with my birth mother. And as a primal wound refers to the sounds and the smells and all that of the woman uh, whose body you were in for nine months. Well, I, that remained for at least a month, a little longer than a month. I think it might have even been the policy at the Salvation Army back then. I'm not sure, but she kept me there at the home for for five or six weeks. So to me, it feels like that helped. Uh, I think then I'm sure there was a trauma. Who really knows? But when I left that and was placed in basically an orphanage for five or six months, um, I'm sure that was traumatic on some level, but at least I had that one month of uh, affection and closeness and bonding mm-hmm. that I could relate to. And then, and from what I can figure, of course, who knows when we're that young, but uh, when I was adopted by uh, my adoptive parents, I seemed to cling to my uh, adoptive mother affectionately for actually the rest of my life. 
what you've said is really interesting, and, and you're probably right. If you were born and bonded to your mother for a month and then, mm-hmm. you know, separated when she left you to be adopted, the next person mm-hmm. that you would have gotten a hold of with your tiny little baby hands would be somebody that you would right. cling to, right? That's really interesting. Yes. Yes, yes. And I mean, I just have a vivid memory, as does uh, my adoptive mother, of me just being beyond affectionate with her our whole life. After that first month of bonding, Tim's mother transferred him to Lutheran Social Services, where he stayed for five or six months. At some point, he developed either measles or mumps, which held up his adoption. Then he was placed with his family. Tim's adoptive mother had been a social worker at the very agency through which he was adopted. He figures that professional experience made her particularly sensitive to the needs of adoptees. She quit the social work job five years before bringing Tim home after adopting their first daughter, his older sister. He was placed in 1945, but since then, he's found out that he was officially adopted in 1949. Asking others about the five-year gap between his placement and his official adoption, folks who know the process well say they feel that timeline is unusually long. Tim speaks very highly of his adopted mother and juxtaposes his affection against his older and younger sisters. I refer to her, of course, she's been uh, dead for quite a while, but um, I refer to her as my lifesaver, really. She, uh, you know because she was the absolute epitome of unconditional love as far as I was concerned. I, mm-hmm. she, she had my back no matter what, and I'm sure she was happy to get all the affection that I was giving her. My, my older uh, sister, adopted sister, uh, was not very affectionate, <laughs> and, and neither was my younger sister, who was their, their birth child, their biological child, but neither of them were the super affectionate type as I was and still am to some some extent. (laughs) Somebody's getting a lot of love from you. That's really cool. The kids always knew they were adopted. Tim's older sister, five years his senior, was adopted through the family. Her birth mother was their mother's sister. In other words, she was raised by her aunt. But Tim's sister never knew that her aunt was her birth mother until a drunken uncle spilled the beans. As a quick side note, Tim's sister approached her aunt her birth mother, to try to reconnect, but her aunt wasn't receptive. They had a strained relationship, and his sister spent a lot of time trying to find her birth father and trying to locate a daughter that she had given up for adoption. So in Tim's immediate family, there were two older adoptees. Then, six years after Tim's adoption, his parents conceived his younger sister, even though his mother was prompted to adopt after a few miscarriages. The joke is everybody thought she had the flu, but it was my <laughs> younger sister. <laughs> and to this day, I still refer to her as the flu baby uh, sometimes. <laughs> so, oh, the poor girl. <laughs> uh, yeah, really, really. And like I said, I think, honestly, I think mother's in her 40s and she raised us two and she was tired. I get the feeling she was kind of tired. So she kind of let the younger one uh, become a bit of a wild child. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that, strangely enough, there was just not a bonding. And even my sister will say she never really bonded with mother that much. 
Tim says that the sisters, with an 11-year spread between them, never bonded either. Actually, his words were, there was no love lost between them. Tim said that if he mentions his older sister's name, even though she's deceased, the younger sister still implodes with furious feelings about their relationship. I kind of speculated that his older sister, an adoptee who already wasn't the affectionate type, might have questioned her adoption, and the introduction of their biological sister could have been sobering for their older sister. I don't know, and neither does Tim. I, my older sister was never really a happy-go-lucky person at all. Mm -hmm. But, I, in fact, I think she told me that when they went to pick me up at the uh, orphanage, she, I was not the one she wanted them to take, let's put it that way. No, really? <laughs> yeah. And she let you I know, know it, Oh, yeah, she let me know it. She let me know it. She mm -hmm. had, believe me, she had her own demons. She was fighting most of her life. I asked him to return to his childhood and his memories of clinging to his mother. He said he had a great childhood and was happy at school and was a popular kid. But he said he did have a couple of moments of questioning the whole adoption thing. I think I was in fourth grade, and I just casually mentioned to my best buddy at the time that I was adopted, and he, he like, you know, almost fell over. It was like, what? Couldn't be true, and blah, blah, blah. And I, this was kind of stunned me, like, yeah, what's the big deal? I was adopted. So, And then that night, he called and said he didn't want to speak to me. He wanted to speak to my mother. And so he spoke to her and asked her, is that really true? Was Tim really adopted? And this is that starts me thinking, good Lord, this is more of a thing than I'm really making it, or, or it is to some people anyway. So my mother, again, being the uh, wise uh, former social worker, threw out the line that, yeah, we chose him. You've heard that word chosen, <laughs> I'm sure, oh, yeah. by other people. Yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, so she kind of reassured him and said, yes, it's true, and blah, blah, blah. So, okay, that's fine. And then the next day, fourth grade show and tell, this little friend of mine gets up and his show and tell is that, guess what? Tim was adopted. And what? <laughs> so that was, I know, really. <laughs> and I'm like, good Lord. Wow. So that threw me for a loop. And then the teacher, who, uh, again, I was a good student and popular and all that, she said, uh, so, Tim, I'd like to see you after school for a little bit <laughs> that day. Wow. So I saw her, and she said, is it true? <laughs> so, you know, th that's the only real experience and times I remember as uh, as a kid that I, I kind of had to face the uh, reality of being adopted. But... Uh, and it threw me off a little bit, but it really didn't didn't make didn't change me much. It must have been such a shock for Tim's fourth grade buddy to call his mother for confirmation of his adoption, and then to out him during show and tell the next day. But that wasn't any real catalyst for Tim's curiosity to search for his birth parents. Thinking back on when his curiosity was piqued, he mentioned his older sister learning her aunt was her birth mother when he was in college was one big moment. But she wasn't the only one adopted within the family. And then we had a cousin in the extended family who we all knew was adopted through the family chain. That his 
father's cousin was actually his birth mother. It was kind of common knowledge. But us three, my sister, my cousin, and myself, were the only three in a rather large extended family on both sides, both my adopted mother and adopted father's side. But we were the only three that were adopted. And those two, having been adopted through the family chain, really made me curious about, okay, it's one of these guys or gals walking around here that I know as aunt or cousin or something. If I want to know if they're my birth parents. Right. And so that really piqued my curiosity. And then it was about the time, This you have to realize, this is a long time ago, 1968, probably before you were even thought of. <laughs> uh, but at the agency, uh, there was a social worker, and I wish I could remember her name, because she was a big advocate for the rights of adopted adults. And she had written an article in uh, a church magazine on the rights of adopted adults. And it spoke to me, not only spoke to me, but she was from the very agency through which I was adopted. Oh, wow. And I thought, hmm, this, you know. Bit of a sign. Really, yeah. Tim read that article back in 1968. He was working as a VISTA volunteer in Oklahoma, sort of a domestic Peace Corps. When he told his adopted mother about his desire to search for his birth mother, she said she was supportive, but he could feel she was kind of hurt inside, so he didn't involve her much along the way. He was home in the summer of 68 before his big move to New York. So I went to the agency and met with the woman that had written the article, and uh, she just was extremely gracious and said, we can only share with you what we call non-identifying information, but you've got two routes you can go. One is we can make it a court case, kind of a landmark court case to open records, but uh, she estimated it might end up costing about $10,000, which at that point could have been $10 million. Sure. It was way beyond anything I could do. But her non-identifying information that she gave me, uh, in conjunction with my my adoptive parents, gave me at that point my adoption record or not record certificate, which had my name before I was adopted on it, and mm. it was a unusual last name. Using the non-identifying information the agency provided that his mother was a nurse at the Mayo Clinic at the time of his birth, and the uniquely identifiable information, including the uncommon surname, Tim opted for option two, hiring a $125 gumshoe private detective in St. Paul. Tim delivered the money to the man at his office downtown, and they agreed Tim should call back in a few days. The detective called my birth mother. I'm not sure what the conversation was, but I'm Pretty sure it was something like we have reason to believe you gave birth to a baby boy 24 years ago, you know, and she she had hidden this away, and I'm sure it shocked her to death. And but he arranged to meet her in the parking lot of a uh, shopping center, car to car, you know, his car next to her car. Really, uh, sounds pretty dramatic. You it know? does. <laughs> <laughs> like two spies meeting from like yeah. warring countries or something. Exactly. 
Tim waited patiently for a few days, allowing the detective to do his job. Then he called to check in. Much to my surprise, he said, well, we found her, and uh, she doesn't want to meet you, but she wants to know you're okay. And I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't expect results like that that mm. fast. Mm -hmm. And so I said, this is, uh, this is a little much. Let me come down to your office and uh, talk with you about it in person. So I did. The uh, next day I went down to his office, and uh, they did a little bit of musical chairs, putting me in one office. And then uh, eventually he called me into his office, and then he said, well, I didn't want you to meet the man I was talking to who uh, is your birth mother's husband and very well could be your father. Uh, I didn't want you to just bump into each other, but if you want to meet him, he's downstairs in a coffee shop. So that's how it went. And I said, oh, yes, I definitely do. So downstairs I went. When Tim arrived at the coffee shop, the man was the only patron in the place. Tim said the guy was nervously chain-smoking lighting one cigarette off of the burning end of its predecessor between his lips. They agreed to go for a drive around the Twin Cities, the man asking tons of questions, scanning Tim for signs of a relation to himself or his wife, Tim's birth mother. The man went home to try to convince his wife to at least meet Tim. I was trying to play it as cool as I possibly could, because it was, it is, in retrospect, kind of a frightening thing. And I wasn't involving my parents. I wasn't involving anybody else. So I had nobody to talk to about it. So I was trying to be strong and tough and keep it in perspective. So I'm thinking, A, she doesn't, she said she didn't want to meet me. B, he's going to probably try to convince her. But let it sit a couple of days and then I'll call him. I could I could kind of tell right away that he was really, really anxious and interested. But so I let it sit a couple of days and then called him. And he said, oh, yeah, we've been waiting for you to call. Blah, blah, blah. But this was me taking control, if you understand what I'm saying. He had convinced her to meet me. Uh, and in, in her words, which she told me years later, he said, uh, you're going to find that this guy is going to be a blessing in your life, so you don't want to turn this down, So, uh, which was sweet. Yeah, that's an incredibly nice thing to say. Wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so we met a couple of days later at a restaurant, and it it was a you know high-end kind of restaurant, and she was called up, and he was, and it was uh, a bit awkward, but... Uh, they both enjoyed a cocktail now and again, and I didn't that much, but I certainly did when I was with them. And uh, <laughs> that helped help things move along. Bet. So we hit it off pretty well, and I'd say very, very well, as a matter of fact. And um, all of a sudden, I was kind of part of their family, but they had two daughters that were teenagers, and they didn't want to tell them, at least not right away. So I popped into their house a couple of times. And they, they very strangely, they ended up just coincidentally living maybe two miles, maybe not even that, from where I was raised by my adoptive family. Wow. I mean, and they had lived in Cleveland, Ohio for a while. And they lived in different parts of Minneapolis. And then just coincidentally, they lived not only that. They lived two, about two miles from my uh, my house, 
But then when I discovered years later exactly where I was born, the Salvation Army Booth Memorial Hospital is five blocks from where they lived. Five blocks. Really? Now, if this was a traumatic thing, which I'm sure it was, but why she would choose or how she could even bear to live so close to where you know that thing happened. But yeah. Who knows? Yeah, that's a that's an amazing point that you so. you've placed a child into adoption. You expect probably never to see them again, and you drive past the very right. building where you transacted that adoption all plan. the time. Unreal. I know. Tim's parents didn't tell their daughters, his sisters, about Tim just yet. He moved to New York, and his birth parents visited him there together. Tim returned home for the holiday season that year. And then I came home at Christmas and went over to see them, and the two girls came out of the bedroom wearing bows, and this was my Christmas present that they had told the girls. Oh, wow, that's so funny. Brother. Uh, that's hysterical. <laughs> Oh, well, listen, here's a couple other hysterical things, okay, that are funnier or stranger than that. The first time I went over there with my adopted sister, my younger sister, and we're close even to this day. We speak every week and all, but so I finally told her about the whole situation. I said, you got to come over and meet him. So she came over. We went to their house in the summer. They had all bought uh, black chewing gum to cover up some of their teeth so it would look like they were toothless hillbillies. So <laughs> my sister would think I came from toothless hillbillies. <laughs> uh, you know, that's their sense of humor. And even worse than that, okay, worse than that, the very first time I was invited into their house, mind you, the first time, you can imagine there's an awkwardness, you sure. know, 24 years. Finally, and I thought at that point that this guy was my father too. But anyway, so I'm sitting there, and as I mentioned, they enjoyed cocktails, so they asked if I'd like one. To this day, uh, I like uh, the drink that they <laughs> chose, which was a vodka gimlet, by the way. It's a pretty good drink. Wow. So I said, sure. So they brought it to me. So we're sitting in their living room, and uh, do you know what a dribble glass is? No, tell me. Uh, Okay. It's a cut glass, fancy looking glass for a cocktail, but it has tiny little slits in the side so that when you drink the drink, it dribbles down your hand. It comes out the side of the glass. <laughs> so they set me up it's with this. It's a practical joke glass. It's a practical joke glass. <laughs> the first time I'm there, for God's sake. <laughs> feeling oh my God. awkward, and my <laughs> vodka gimlet is drinking, dripping down my arm, and I'm trying to be cool about it. Like, what am I doing here? And then eventually they, they stop laughing. So oh, my gosh. I think you're, you're getting an idea what they were like, That's I think, right? hysterical. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they tortured you. With a they oh my me. gosh, that's hysterical! Wow, I have to say, some of my friends who I share this story with, they're kind of appalled. They say, "Oh, that was that was mean. That was passive aggressive, or whatever." And maybe there was a bit, but honestly, uh, it was funny, <laughs> you know. Yeah, if you <laughs> thought it was funny, joke, believe me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I could see how somebody our, might think that was passive aggressive because that is a pretty intense yeah. situation to immediately pull off a practical joke. But 
Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, on fun. the other hand, it did kind of cut the tension Absolutely. for heaven's sake, you know? Yeah, that's yeah, right. That. Tim referred to the man by saying, at the time, I thought he was my biological father, referring to his birth mother's husband. Tim shared that her husband was one of the only male nurses in the nursing program at the Mayo Clinic, which afforded him the privilege of living with the doctors with virtually no rules. Conversely, she had to live with the nursing staff under the strict rules of the nuns, a fact she always resented. Somehow, they began seeing one another. Then, he was deployed to World War II. Actually, on, on the day I was born, she pulled out an old telegram that she had received from him dated the same day as my birth, just saying he was thinking about her and kind of telling about the times he was having, etc., etc. So they led me to believe that he was my father. She was sort of seeing him and, you know, ended up marrying him five years after I was born. Uh, so, yeah, that was the story. And that lasted for from when I met them, 1968, until she died in 2005. So mm -hmm. that, you know, that lie perpetuated itself. Tim says during that time, he got very close with his sisters. He's godfather to one of their children, and they've gotten pretty close. But he recalls a time when he was visiting his sister in California, and the other sister and his birth mother were in town as well. They were chatting away when the subject of blood types arose. So everybody was asking, what's your blood type? What's your blood type? And I knew mine because I donated blood. And uh, I said, well, mine is my attitude on life. It's B positive. <laughs> this is back in the early 70s. So they uh, took that information and filed it away, so to speak. And after Margaret is the name of my birth mother, after Margaret died in 2005, they then came to me and said, Tim, we do not think our father is your father. And I'm like, what? How could that be? And he, I mean, he came to New York to visit me on his own a few times and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then they said, well, do you remember years ago when we asked you your blood type? Now, you know, we, there's a formula for blood types that only type blankety-blank can have a child with blankety-blank type right. uh, I was not on top of it, still I'm not to this day, but one of my sisters had studied medicine, and she had figured that out way back when, in the early 70s, and, but never shared it with me. She, they were all kind of afraid of dear old mom. She was kind of an intimidating sort. Mm -hmm. So they waited until she died to tell me this. So I immediately did a, a sibling DNA test with one of my sisters, and it came back that we were half-siblings. Wow. So that was in 2006, actually, when we did that test. So it was from 2006 on that I then started hunting for who was, who was the guy who did the deed. <laughs> yeah. So just for clarity, though, you used yep. the word lie. You feel like they intentionally misled you about who your biological father was. Or at I least no, she did. Yeah, I have no doubt that both of them probably did. I, I threw in probably, but from what I can figure out, while the 
the time at which I was conceived, which was in November of 1943, her husband was in Europe at the time. So it would have been an amazing FedEx <laughs> job to send his sperm to <laughs> Rochester. So I think it's pretty impossible. I, I think he knew too. I think this was part of a little another secret. And I was, by the way, a secret even after I met them, I was supposed to be a deep, dark secret for everybody. Nobody else was supposed to know. And it wasn't until she died that my sisters listed me in the obituary. And then everybody is like, oh, my God, who is that? And, so in reunion, and you were only known to the nuclear family. Absolutely. Wow. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I met some of their friends. And, and okay, here's something relevant. They came to New York uh, in those early days, and they went to a convention. Her husband was a hospital administrator, and there was a convention of those folks in New York. So they were staying with me, and then they brought me along to the convention and to the party afterwards and brought me to the party. And these are old friends of theirs saying, well, who is this? Who is this? And again, they played the kind of joke routine. Oh, he's a, he's a relative. Doesn't he look like us? Don't you think he looks like us? Then, and then there was a lot of laughter and that crossed the line. That was one of the lower points of this whole thing for me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't deal with it. You know, it was like, okay. Cause your relation was, had become up. a joke. Yeah, exactly. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, in the middle of the night, I called uh, a mentor of mine in Oklahoma City, a Roman Catholic nun who was uh, up on all the searching I was doing. And I woke her up and I just had a vent and say, I can't handle this. This is making me crazy. So that was, wow. that was hard. Yeah, that was hard. Tim feels sure Margaret knew who his birth father was, given the timeline she outlined with her future husband overseas. He did the sibling DNA test with his sisters, confirming their half-relation to each other. He tried to figure out what direction to go next, thinking back on a rumor from one of his older cousins that his father was a doctor. But Tim could never figure out how she knew that. She would never divulge her source. He hit several dead ends, including one with the best friend of his adopted father, a doctor. That man had a cabin on a lake in Minnesota, right next to Tim's family's own cabin. That same doctor also knew Margaret and her husband Pete, and they had been out to visit his cabin before. Tim had seen their name in the cabin's guest book. Tim reached out to the guy's daughter. She was unbelievably kind and understanding and said, well, what do we have to do to find out whether it's him? I said, let's do a DNA test. We did a DNA test, again, a sibling test, and it came back with an 83% chance that we were half-siblings. Wow. And the company said, we can't say that you are unless it's above 90%. Well, I'm thinking 83% is pretty high, and given the fact that he knew both my birth mother and my, you know. Yeah. So we kind of went with that, but then they suggested we do a Y DNA test with his son because the Y DNA I'm sure you're familiar with. Sure. From father to son does not change and that would kind of confirm or rule it out. So we did and it ruled him out. Hmm. And 
again, that was another low point, you know, after this search, which seemed, and again, this gal was so forthcoming and willing to accept me and help me and all that. But you know, it was another dead end. Yeah. Hmm. Tim had other unsuccessful DNA tests, too. One with the daughter of Margaret's friend, whom Tim's sisters thought looked like him. And one lead from Margaret's nursing roommate in Rochester, whose daughter found a picture of a guy she thought looked like Tim. But nothing panned out. In 2007, Tim caught wind of FTDNA, Ancestry DNA, and 23andMe through Richard Hill, a former scientist, author, and DNA advisor. Tim credits Richard with guiding his search to all of those DNA tests. Boy, that was like about 2006, 2007, I started with all those DNA tests. And as a result, discovered that my biological father was Jewish. Oh. This was a big revelation to me, as I was basically raised in a waspish little neighborhood in <laughs> northeast Minneapolis, mm -hmm. and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now... Thank God I'm in downtown Brooklyn, which is as diverse as you can get. And I think most of my neighbors are Jewish, but this was, you know, this was a surprise to me, to say the least. Sure. Also, my adoptive parents were well known in their Lutheran church circles. My father had started a church in the neighborhood, and I had gone to a seminary to study to be a Lutheran minister, so I came from that kind of a, wow. you know, background. So, so this was, that was eye opening. Yeah, yeah, big news. Yeah, and and then uh, in that process, I thought, okay, uh, now we know he's Jewish. Probably a doctor at the Mayo Clinic, since that's where she was. So, I started searching sites of doctors working at the Mayo Clinic in 1943 and looking up names that sounded Jewish. Again, this is a pretty thankless kind of search, but yeah. I tried it. And then they were kind enough to share with me a couple photos. But after I think the third or fourth photo I asked them to send me, they said, well, we're not a ge genealogical site. We can't do that yeah. anymore. But Tim kept at it. Finally, in January 2016, he had just returned from a vacation in Florida. It was 2 a.m., so he checked his DNA profiles online. Boing, there's a close match. Second cousin or first cousin once removed. That was an exciting moment for Tim, but he didn't want to send a message at 2 a.m. for fear of seeming like a crazy man. But when he woke up the next day, there was a message from the cousin waiting for him. So the next morning I got up anxious, and bingo, there was a message from this person saying, who are you? You're my closest match. I don't know you. Wow. And yeah, and she shared her information and uh, she lives in Brooklyn, New York, not too far from me. Is that right? Wow. And isn't that something? Yeah. So she, um, so we emailed back and forth and uh, she had her parents test and her mother did it first, and her mother came back as a first cousin to me. So if you've got a first cousin mm. match, you're pretty close oh, to yeah. who the guy was. And her, her mother's mother had no brothers, so we could eliminate that side. And her mother's father had three brothers. So it was down to one of those three brothers, pretty much. 
Tim asked for contact information for cousins that he might reach out to, and the family was very kind, but they didn't have a whole lot of information to share. Finally, a few months later, the family sent him the address for a possible connection to a woman who lives in California. Tim wrote the woman a letter to introduce himself and sent her some pictures of himself. A couple of emails back and forth, and the woman said, well, you look like the Levines. The DNA points to it. And my father was a surgeon in training at the Mayo Clinic for three months. Really? October, November, and December of 1943. That short so, period of time? Yes. He was on his way to the war, so they just had specific war uh, or battlefield training, I guess. So he was only there those three months, but one of those months happened to be the month that I was conceived. So That's incredible. So that answered, that answered it. Wow. And the, the follow-up to that is that she uh, ended by saying she did not want to pursue this at all. I said, okay, well, I can have dealt with uh, cantankerous women before. <laughs> and I can, I can put this in perspective. So I just I, I email her once in a while, ask for some medical information because her father was a doctor and mm -hmm. her husband had been a doctor. And she responded. And then about a year later, I said, I'm coming out to California, but I want to be sure you'll be around so we can at least meet. And she said, okay. Wow. This was a little over a year ago. We met and she did a complete 180 degree turn and uh, brought me to meet her granddaughter the next day and was introducing me as her brother and uh, wow. she lives in California we did get together with one of her sons in DC last October but then the most recent thing that you probably read uh, that I posted was mm -hmm. that she invited me and my partner to Israel mm -hmm. to travel with her and meet her son, who's a professor at the University of Tel Aviv. Wow. And we did, and it, uh, honestly, I'm, I'm talking about it, and I'm getting a little bit of a, a, a shiver about it. It was, just could not, could not have been a, a better sort of end to my ongoing search. He was as wonderful a guy as you could find, and my, I think the post you probably read was when we got together for dinner the first night, he wanted to give a toast and he basically said, and not basically, he said, you know, there are no words. And that was it. And it was so moving and kind. And uh, uh, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that's really amazing. Gosh, that must have been. It must have felt incredible. I mean, even starting all the way back at her 180 to be accepting of your visit and willing yeah. to meet you. And then for you guys to yeah, travel yeah. internationally to Tel Aviv. Ooh, to meet. Yeah. Wow. I wanted to go back for a second to Tim detecting his adopted mother's pain about his search for his biological family. I inquired about how things went with her as it related to his reunions. Again, as I mentioned, I was so close to to my uh, adoptive mother, I was really afraid of hurting her. She knew initially that I was searching, and she did share with me uh, my adoption certificate, and then she gave me a couple 
people to contact in the state, maybe if I wanted to get some more information. But she uh, very significantly she signed a letter when I was in Oklahoma with some of this information. She signed it love blank. Every other letter was love mother. This letter was love blank. Her so, first name. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh. So I just decided I would keep her, not hurt her with sharing it too much. But eventually, and it, it also eventually as it became more of a thing that other people were finding their birth parents, uh, I did share it with them. It's It seemed to be okay. And then at one point... My uh, the guy that she claimed was my birth father, he died about four years after I met him, and so she was a, a widow for many years. But uh, I wanted to have them all meet, so I took them all out to dinner, her and my adoptive parents. So we had I, it was a rather awkward dinner, but we did have a dinner. Everybody was polite, and they got to at least meet each other, mm -hmm. so that you know I, I didn't have to feel like I was perpetuating another secret here mm -hmm. and uh and so i was glad i did it, it you know very cool wow tim <laughs> i'm really happy for you man and and especially you know you said you you went how old were you, you must have been 60 something years old when you finally made this discovery of who he was your biological father uh, i was 71 i'm gonna be 74 in a couple of months wow You've made this discovery at 71. <laughs> That's incredible, man. Yeah, that right. must feel great. It does feel great. My God. My, my uh, sister on, on uh, my father's side, she just turned 80. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm glad we're doing this before we all disappear into the Never Never Land or That's whatever. Right. Wow. <laughs> Super happy for you, man. Thank you so much for getting on the phone. I, I enjoyed hearing your story. Thanks for sharing. Oh, Damon, thank you for being interested. No, my uh, pleasure. And like I said, part of my reason is if there's any any information or anything that will help anybody else, that I'm just here for that. I've got to do that. you got to pass it on, you know? I appreciate it, man. Take care. All the best to you, Tim. Thank you, Damon. Take care. You too. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Tim says all of his sisters have really been great and are interested in at least meeting one another. He admits he doesn't know the extent of the relationship between Dr. Levine and Margaret, but he's very glad he's solved the mystery of who his birth parents and siblings are. Tim discovered his paternal biological family in his early 70s. To me, the fact that his curiosity continued to this day is exemplary of the innate passion so many of us feel for knowing more about who we really are. It sounds like Tim was really fortunate for how things unfolded, and he acknowledges that any aspect of his search could have turned out much worse than it did. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Tim's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can choose to share your whole story, maintain some privacy about parts of your story, or share completely anonymously. You can find the show at facebook.com slash whoamireally 
or follow me on Twitter at WAIReally. And please, if you like the show, you can subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, it would mean so much to me if you would take a moment to share a rating or leave a comment. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. Here's something I wanted to share with you, sure, Damon, because it was pretty interesting. When I just started the search for my birth father, and I don't know where I was in the DNA testing. I'd probably done some, but um, I was really getting nowhere. And on one of the uh, adoptee DNA sites, someone had mentioned a psychic. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, what have I got to lose by uh, contacting a psychic? And it's some guy upstate New York who's a minister, I think. But someone had said he's he seems legit and blah blah blah, and it was seventy five dollars which I could handle. So long story short, I called him. We set up a time over the phone where he'd do this uh, reading or whatever it was called, and he re- recorded it and sent me a copy of it. And it was pretty nondescript. A lot of things would uh, fit a lot of people. Gave me a few names. That, right didn't mean too much, but this is the part that gives me a little chill. He said, uh, oh, I'm looking and I see significantly a Christian cross, but interestingly enough, right next to it of equal size is the star of David. Is that right? That's crazy. And I'm like, oh my God, how did he know that? You know? That's really. I'm trying to think. Do I sound Jewish on the phone or what? You know? <laughs> right, right. How did he pull that? That's crazy. <laughs> How did he pull that? So I thought that was pretty interesting.